This is Spotlight on France. I'm Sarah Elsis. I'm Alison Hurd. Coming up, a young climate activist on why French youth were late to the Youth for Climate movement and the need for an environmental revolution. And the use of opioids in France. It's not the crisis of the United States, but the use and abuse of high-powered painkillers is growing here. But first, France voted in the European parliamentary elections on May the 26th. There was a slightly better turnout than usual, with around 50%. That's 10% up on last time round. Now, these elections were billed as a sort of midterm test for President Emmanuel Macron and his reform program, also his ambitions for Europe. Polls put the far-right national rally slightly ahead of Macron's party, and in the end, they were right. Les Français ont placé la liste du Rassemblement national en tête des élections. French voters put the national rally list at the top of the elections, said Marine Le Pen just after the results were announced. But it wasn't the hammering it might have been. Le Pen's party's margin was less than 1% over Macron's party. And they didn't do as well as in the last EU elections when they got a quarter of the votes. In a bit of a surprise turn, the Greens did well, coming in third place with 13%. C'est donc bien une vague verte européenne. Head of the Greens, Yannick Jadot, said it was a European green wave. Both the national rally and the Greens' results contribute to shifts in the European Parliament itself, which will have to rethink its traditional majority between the Conservatives and the Socialists. Here in France, the results are making an impact on politics as well. The biggest losers were the mainstream parties, the right-wing Républicains and the Socialists. France clearly rejected the old established structures. Here's Laurent Vauquier, head of the Républicains, that got trounced with 8.3% of the vote, much less than they expected. He's speaking about the need to rebuild the party. On ne peut pas laisser la France. We can't let France remain stuck between the deception of Macron's party and the chaos of the national rally. We have three years to propose something else. That's three years, of course, before the next presidential election here in France. The national rally is now a political force to be reckoned with, though it's unclear if it can ever get beyond the 25% mark. Nonetheless, the party did come in first in more than twice as many départements as Macron's party, mainly in the rural, the depressed and deindustrialized areas of France where, by the way, the yellow vest protests first took off. The two yellow vest lists themselves didn't do well, the main one scoring just half a percent. All of this will have an impact on French politics. Next year there are local elections and there's a gaping hole on the left, which some might see as an opportunity, though to be filled by whom or what is the big question. It'll be interesting to see how the Greens capitalize on their win. They haven't been able to do that in the past, remember? They won a whopping 16% in the 2009 European election which did not translate into electoral gains elsewhere. But there does seem to be a greening of politics, or at least a political awareness, and they could perhaps draw in people who find that the ruling party's environmental measures were too little, too late. Or, of course, disaffected socialists. They can't bring themselves to believe in what remains of the Socialist Party here in France, but they can't accept the ruling party's liberal economic program either. Sarah, some commentators have pointed out that the Greens will have to reach out and get the working class vote to make the Green transition more meaningful to them. So far, political ecology is speaking more to France's young urban middle class.
it's not easy to make the ecological transition. As a story this week over job cuts at the General Electric power plant in the east of France showed only too well. On Tuesday, the American multinational revealed plans to slash 1,044 jobs. Most of the workers will be at its gas power business in Belfort, which could lose a quarter of its workforce. The company blames falling profits, down 71% in the first quarter on competition from renewables like solar and wind power. It says it wants to regain sustainable competitiveness. The French finance minister admitted that the planned cuts were a hard blow for France and he told Parliament he'd try and guarantee the future of the site. Unsurprisingly, unions and the main opposition parties are outraged and they're blaming not so much General Electric as the government and they do have a point. General Electric bought the gas turbine manufacturing business from the French industrial group Alstom in 2014. And that was a controversial deal uh, did get the green light though from Emmanuel Macron who was finance minister at the time because GE promised it would create a thousand jobs. In the end only 25 were created at the Belfort site and in February this year General Electric agreed to pay 50 million euros into a reindustrialization fund because it had fallen short of the target. So from the promise to create 1,000 jobs we end up with over 1,000 job cuts in a country where unemployment is close to 9% and Emmanuel Macron has promised to get it down to 7% by 2022. These are challenging times for French journalists. Several have now been called in for questioning by police to discuss recent leaks of official secrets. In fact, nine journalists have been called in in just two weeks. Unsurprisingly, the press has given a lot of space to this story, questioning whether freedom of the press is under attack here in France. Michael Fitzpatrick, you keep an eye on the French press for us. Tell us maybe what's so interesting about these stories, perhaps for non-journalists. Well, there are two separate cases, one involving state security personnel and the other is associated with French arms sales to Saudi Arabia. The security story is very serious because you'll understand that there are members of certain units of the state security forces whose identities are protected by the law, a law which dates from 2016, which which has never so far been enforced, protects the identity of these special services units. The arms story concerns revelations by a website and a television, a couple of television channels, of the fact that sales of French weapons to Saudi Arabia have actually been turning up on the battlefield in Yemen. And, of course, that's a a conflict which uh, France is supposed not to have any involvement in. That information was based on top-secret military documents. So to that extent, it's quite legitimate to pull the journalists in and make them justify their actions, right? Uh, Yes. Obviously, both sides have been doing their jobs. So it's a sort of cat-and-mouse game here. And I think that uh, this week's uh, interviews uh, with nine members of various editorial teams has been intended to send out a double message. To the journalists, the police are saying, uh, be careful if you look into certain types of stories and find certain types of information. Remember that the consequences could be very serious for some of the people who protect you. I also think there's a message to the moles within the security apparatus. And what might happen to some of these journalists, apart from getting sort of their knuckles wrapped? I think it's that, uh, knuckles wrapped, and it won't have any great effect. Uh, 
the law, though, is uh, quite severe. Um, uh, Ariane Chemin, the Le Monde journalist, for her publication of a security force member's name in the newspaper, risks a €5,000 fine and uh, five years in prison. And uh, the television journalists who are involved in the Yemen arms uh, story uh, risk even higher fines and longer prison terms if they were eventually prosecuted and found guilty. And now to go back in time. And we head back to 2005. This week, on the 29th of May 2005, France voted to reject the EU's draft constitution in a referendum. The idea of that constitution was to streamline EU institutions and organize more EU integration after 10 new members joined the year before, in 2004. Now, Brussels thought it was in the bag, but France threw a spanner in the works. Almost 55% of the French voted no. They came from across the political spectrum. And they weren't all dyed-in-the-wool Eurosceptics. Some were pro-EU, but concerned that the Constitution would enforce an economically liberal model. Others thought it could pave the way for Turkey entering a bloc. That's something that the majority of French people opposed. And then some right-wing opponents saw the treaty as a threat on French sovereignty. Of course, with referendums, there's more than one to see it and voters weren't just rejecting the European constitution they were also rejecting the right-wing government of the time. Yeah, there are echoes of the UK's 2016 referendum on Brexit there aren't there Sarah? Yeah well it ended up having more of an impact on domestic party politics than on the EU itself because despite concerns that the no vote would stop more European integration it didn't happen. And many of the provisions of the constitution found their way into the 2007 Treaty of Lisbon which passed without a referendum. All that has given Euroscepticism in France a boost. Many say, with some justification, that they were consulted and then ignored. For them, the failure to respect the results of the 2005 referendum proves how undemocratic our current political system is here. Even President Macron's Secretary of State for European Affairs has said that 2005 created a deep democratic rupture. The moral of all of this? Think very hard before you call a referendum. Young people around the world have been demonstrating weekly since January to drive home the urgency of climate change. Do something now, they're telling the world, as we'll be suffering the consequences. French youth were a bit late to the movement. They staged their first demonstration mid-March. Louis Maillet is the president of the REFED, the National Network of Students for Sustainable Development. He was involved in the organization of the Paris marches. He's 22 years old, studying environmental science and policy at Paris's Sciences Po University, a subject he told me he was drawn to academically at first. But once he started studying, it became a mission. I recognize that it was like very important and very uh, scary for me. And for me, it became the most important subject to me. And I think it, it's not a good point for friends because I would have expected like my secondary schools would give me the tools to understand what is at stake. And it was not basically, we studied many, many, many interesting things, but it was even not a subject. And sometimes when we could discuss it, it was like a one line on a book. It was, it was very nothing important. So you're running a sustainable development uh, network for students mm. in France. What are the issues facing, say, French students? People are asking the same question. I'm asking like like 
what the hell is happening? We don't know that much stuff about it. It's it's frightening. And what can I do on my daily life and on my activist life, if I am willing to? And for the daily life, we are offering many tools. For example, like organizing, which is very basic, but it's not uh, implemented everywhere in France. Organizing the the recycling on the campus. That's why students are going crazy and they're demonstrating. Like we don't have even the possibility in our campuses just to recycle our trash. That's that's so problematic. And then there is many other stuff like how to shift the canteen to a sustainable one, so less meat, less animal products, more bio, local food, and less waste. And we've got in France a legal framework. It's called the Plan Vert, the Green Plan. It is a vote in doing the Le Grenelle de l'Environnement, which was in 2008. So 10 years ago. Yeah, and it should be implemented everywhere, but it's not. Because I don't know, like... Well, this is saying, you know, recycling and sustainable development in public spaces, this should happen. Yeah, but it's not applied. And we are, we really are lobbying for this. And it's very difficult because the institutions are very big, very complicated. Do you feel like you're taken seriously? I feel it's getting more and more serious. The mobilization inspires for many, many people in power the emergency and the responsibilities they have. What about the um, mobilization, the Youth for Climate movement? What about it? What is that message that you think has come through in a way that past actions haven't? On a personal level, I'm very proud to see that France and many other countries have seen their children and their youth raised in that way. Basically, they also say, which is very interesting, that I want to live in 50 years. Like I don't want to be dead because of many horrible events that could happen because of the destabilization of climate and biodiversity loss and so on. Why do you think it's interesting? Because you say they, so it's younger people mm. than you, obviously. So what what is that 10-year difference that makes you know the 12-year-old of today be able to say this where maybe, say, you, when you were 12, it wasn't as much of an issue? I think it's because of the work of many organizations that are advocating for climate protection and, and biodiversity protection and so on for at least 30 years. It's not new, like it's built on many, many years of, of advocacy. I feel I am part of that generation is that we have always lived in a world where climate change is going. Uh, we have many extreme weather events that are destroying many, many lives, even if it's not in our countries. We can see it on the televisions, we can see it on, on the web, we have access to many new information through social networks, which were not available easily before. So all that let us be aware that there is a problem. It, it doesn't mean that we have the solution, but it means we are aware that there is a problem. And that's why we have people that demonstrate in the street saying, it's not possible to do this this way. Listen to the scientists. They know what are the issues. They know what at stake and know you have to act correspondingly and take the good measures. It's interesting, though, having seen all this and the buildup of these climate demonstrations in the last several months, it almost seemed as though France came at it a little bit late. And despite the fact that France is supposed to be very well in demonstration, um, two reasons, I think, for this. It's first that we are far away from Sweden. Because, of course, it starts with Greta Thunberg, who's a Swedish student, and you're saying that mm -hmm. we're farther away from them. Exactly. I think it's a, it's a real explanation. And the second, I think, interesting explanation is that we already had demonstration for climate, which was organized by adults. We had uh, two of those demonstrations during the late 2018. And I think people like focused on that demonstration and not on news one. And um, even if Greta Thunberg has raised basically this movement, it was already there. Like people were already prepared. If it was not her, it could be like someone else in one year or it would be no one and it would happen anyway. So I, I think that the soil was already prepared for this and now it's emerging. 
So going from activism and even day-to-day sustainable development issues to questions Mm. of policy change and politics, Mm. there was just an election, European election with the new parliament, and a surprise increase in the amount of votes in France for the Green Party, and sort of a last-minute surge of interest, at least on a polling level, into in the environment. Mm -hmm. Is this heartening, or how do how do you how do you interpret these results? So basically, I would say. It's better than what I expected. And then when we see the big picture and uh, who is in the parliament, we see that the far right, which is not really uh, environmental friendly, uh, is on the lead in France. We see that the party of the current president, Macron, is also leading. And he is not very famous in France for its environmental uh, achievements. I think all the youth movement for climate, when we see the results, I, oh, we have to... We have to continue to fighting, and there is a new date for the next demonstration. It's interesting, though, how you say, oh, it's better than nothing. It clashes with Mm. the discourse in these demonstrations Mm. where it's like all or nothing. Kids are saying, you're all saying, come on, this is an an issue that we're either alive or dead. You're you're right. But even for me, like it's kind of a dual discourse. Even in my head, it's complicated to, to find the two way. Every day when we have a little victory, we have to acknowledge it. So... My point at the organization is saying it's better than nothing. But my personal feeling about my future is that we are still like uh, with a sword above our head, like really. Basically, I am not that hopeful for the coming years, but I hope that one day a point would be passed, a tipping point, and afterwards it will be like escalating very quick, like a kind of environmental revolution in a way. But we have to prepare it. Lois Maillet is the president of the REFED, the National Network of Students for Sustainable Development in France. You may have heard that there's an opioid drug crisis in the United States. It started with prescriptions of painkillers like OxyContin, highly addictive opioids that got people hooked. In France, the prescription and use of these drugs has increased dramatically over the last 15 years, as have addictions and overdoses. Four people a week die of overdoses from opioid painkillers in France. Now, that's nowhere near the levels of the United States, where 130 people die a day. But enough to concern health authorities here. One of the most used and abused opioid painkillers in France is tramadol. Grégoire Sauvage met a woman who got addicted and is now trying to fight it. You wouldn't guess that Jasmine Buarty is a drug addict, but she is. To be like I am today, I need my dose of tramadol. Today my body needs it to be normal. If I don't get my dose, I'll have the same withdrawal symptoms of a heroin addict. I'll be nauseous, tingling legs, I'll get chills, I'll shake, throw up. I'll be extremely depressed, aggressive. I'm not at all an aggressive person. I'm incapable of doing harm to anyone, even an animal. But when I'm missing my tramadol, I could kill everyone. I scare myself. It's hard to imagine the 25-year-old has delicate features. She's sitting quietly in a park in Lyon. She had never taken drugs in her life until she was prescribed tramadol in the spring of 2016 to treat pain related to a back surgery. Then she was told to continue the drug for endometriosis, a swelling of the uterus, which is very painful during menstruation. Tramadol, she was told, would help with the pain. At the beginning, for me, it was a painkiller. 
I had no idea that I would become an addict. I was told to take it when I had pain. I was not told about the addictiveness or about any side effects. I would have liked to be a bit more supervised and warned about the addiction. But when I was in pain at the time, I would take more. I'd say it's like paracetamol. It'll be even better. But actually, it intensifies the addiction and makes it happen faster. Boati currently takes 100 milligrams of tramadol in the morning and 100 at night. Tramadol should be difficult to acquire in France. It's only available via a secure prescription and for a month at a time. But Boati says she had lots of access. When I go to the ER or elsewhere, doctors re-prescribe tramadol. Even though I already have some, I already have a relatively high dose, but they prescribe even more, even though I tell them I am addicted. She came to realize on her own that she had a problem. One day I realized that my pain didn't require such a strong painkiller every day. I told myself, you don't need it, so why do you take it every day? And that was a shock. I told myself, I'm 25 years old. I can't be dependent on a medication like this my whole life. I need to cut myself off. It helped me for a time, but now that I don't need it anymore, I have to find a way to separate myself. Boati's situation does not surprise Delphine Luyuri a pain management doctor in Paris. She says doctors in France have not been trained in the best uses of opioids, which don't work on all kinds of pain. Many doctors have not been fully trained on dealing with nerve pain, which is linked to neurological irritation rather than damaged muscular tissue. The treatment is very particular, and that lack of knowledge means certain medications are consumed because they're known as painkillers, even though they're not effective against certain kinds of pain. Luyuri specializes in treating endometriosis, which causes neurological pain but does not respond to opioids. However, she is optimistic that younger doctors are learning this. Pain management dates back about 15 years in France, and Luyuri says it's already a good thing that pain is considered something to be treated. Pain is treated much better and is better recognized today. Now we must take the step of educating both patients and doctors to propose treatments that are in line with the mechanism of their pain and to pay attention to the effects of the treatment, helpful or harmful. And this is how we manage this treatment. Because for Luyuri, an increase in opioid prescriptions is not necessarily bad, but they must be used correctly by doctors and patients. For some types of pain, it's sometimes legitimate to take morphine without undesirable effects. Every time you get an operation, you get morphine, and it works. It's about the proper use. Addictions and the related problems are a concern in France, but not nearly as bad as the United States. She says France has more limits. In the U.S., there are no safeguards. Advertising drugs is allowed. In France, we're not allowed to advertise prescription drugs on television. There are safeguards in France that limit the misuse of these drugs. As a pain management specialist, Luyuri says drugs are only one tool 
other things can work. We could also treat it without medication, physical approaches like osteopathy or mesopathy, and mental approaches because it's the brain that interprets pain. So things like meditation, psychotherapy, sophrology and hypnosis could be interesting. Jasmine Boati is trained to do some of these things. Her primary care doctor sent her to a pain management clinic in Lyon, and for the last two months, they have been helping her quit Tramadol. They have been reducing doses. To deal with the pain that's left, I've been taking therapeutic baths, doing physical therapy. I do a lot of breathing exercises with a physical therapist. I'm also looking at natural treatments, grapefruit, seed extract, aloe vera. That works pretty well. Heat sources, too. I think I can handle it today with alternatives that are less harsh on my body. She is about to enter a week-long hospital stay to try to completely cut off her tramadol use. I'm a bit scared, to be honest, but I am reassured that I'll be supervised. If there is a problem, I'll have help and I won't be alone. I won't run the risk of hurting people around me. Afterwards, I'll be given a less strong painkiller for acute incidents, but I'd rather have a little bit of pain once in a while than be dependent for life on a drug like this. Buarty has regrets, but she does not blame her doctors. I think they're not informed enough about this. I don't blame them, but I'd like to sound a warning. I'd like doctors to stop prescribing it for anything. I've seen people who got a tramadol prescription for a tooth extraction. That's not necessary. People should be warned of the danger of this drug. If there are other solutions, they should be used before prescribing tramadol. That's it for this week. Spotlight on France is a podcast from the English service of Radio France International. This episode was mixed by Guillaume Buffet. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email, spotlight.france at rfi.fr. You can listen to this and all of our previous episodes on our website, rfienglish.com. And you can subscribe to the show there or on your favorite podcast platform. See you next Friday. Bye.